You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Daisy Pitkin, welcome to Labor Wave Radio. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, me too. We've been on a bit of a hiatus, the show has. So I'm really excited that your conversation with me is going to be the first one to revive us from hiatus. Oh, nice. I'm honored. You're the recent author of a new book called On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. And I got done reading it not too long ago, and I really, really like it a lot. Part of it just resonates with me because so much of the story retells a campaign in industrial laundry. And I've had some minimal experience organizing workers out of industrial laundries. So that was great, (laughs) just to kind of hear all the dirt and all the challenges that you went through. But I think there's also just so much of it to just ask questions about power and how people change, all of this to say. It's a really excellent book, and we're not going to be able to cover all the details of like what you write about, but people that are listening should go out and read it and listen to your upcoming interviews about the book. What I wanted to start off by talking about was this kind of central motif in your book about change and power, like what gives people the will to fight back, like what gives workers the will to fight and to challenge bosses and the fire in the belly to do these marathon campaigns that have successes and a lot of failures. You know, I think that's like a question that you start the book with and kind of continue to circle around. And so I just wanted to kind of start there. And if you don't mind, I think there's a really good quote that can kind of help us out with getting the conversation going. And you write, I wonder if the will to fight is unrelated to vision or imagination, if it's instead a kind of metamorphosis, a state of being so ravenous for change that you are changed. The tightening skin tightens around the neck and body of the caterpillar, which is already walking around with parts of another future body tucked inside. The you before the fight denatures, exploding into newness out of necessity. So can you like elaborate a little bit more about what you're talking about there and this idea that the will to fight comes from a sort of metamorphosis? There's a whole thread in the book about moths, which, you know, probably on the surface seems a little strange in a book that's really about a very long, hard labor fight. But that comes from the fact that there was this strange kind of infestation of moths that happened in Phoenix around the time that we launched this really epic fight at a laundry factory where one of the main characters in the book, Alma, works. It was a 24-hour seven days a week laundry facility. A lot of the meetings that we were having with workers were in the middle of the night during shift changes. 
And, you know, there are many departments in an industrial laundry and workers would come out as their department got out for the night or go in as their department went in. So there were workers in smaller groups kind of constantly cycling in and out of the factories. We were having these all night, sometimes series of shift meetings in the parking lot where there were these floodlights shining down. And we would stand under the floodlights so that we had a little bit of light. But during the the launch of the campaign, there were all these moths and they were like circling around the floodlight and plinking their bodies against it. And it became the kind of ambient noise of the campaign. And the, the woman who was kind of the main worker leader at the factory, whose name is Alma, we became really uh, close in a lot of ways because of just that, the sheer number of hours that we spent together, like grinding out the work of the campaign. But at some point, we started calling ourselves Las Polias, which is Spanish for the moths. And we called ourselves that sort of as a joke at first, because I had been reading um, In the Time of the Butterflies by Julia Alvarez, like in the motel at night where the organizers were staying. And it's about the, uh, the Trujillo sisters in the Dominican Republic who called themselves Las Mariposas. Um, which was kind of the nickname that they used for themselves as they fought clandestinely clandestinely to resist the Trujillo dictatorship. Alma and I started joking that we were kind of their like ugly blind cousins, <laughs> sort of, you know, bashing our heads against the wall um, or the light, uh, kind of grinding out or organizing one house call at a time in Phoenix. So we were calling ourselves Las Polias. And that quote you read, I think the moths in the book are there because I didn't know how to write about this campaign without them because they were so intertwined with my memory of the campaign. But in a way, in the book, the moths become a way for me to think about a whole number of things. But one of them being the central question in the book about what drives people to fight. In a campaign, I think we often see that you know a group of workers of, of of a group of workers at a work site some workers are kind of immediately ready to stand up and take a leadership role on the campaign and others are not they're too afraid or they don't want to or they don't believe in the vision for the union or perhaps they're just not pissed off enough about conditions inside the plant or the factory or whatever work site you're organizing to feel um, energized or driven to stand up and fight, right? And the book asks a question about that. Why are some people willing, ready to fight and other people are not? And I think there are a lot of theories floated about that in organizing in general. Some of them are people fight because they trust organizers as leaders, or they fight because they trust their coworkers who have taken leadership positions in the campaign. And, and they want to follow them through the fight. And another might be that workers are angry and we've, you know, they're agitated around issues at work and their anger sort of is the driving force that gets them through their fear and into the space where they're able to fight. And I think where the book, I think about these theories pretty hard and the way that they kind of work themselves into organizing models. 
And I think at the end of the book, what I learn and kind of using the moths to get there is that in my experience in organizing, I think people fight because they witness their own ability to fight. They witness their own capacity to stand up with their coworkers and act collectively and witnessing that about themselves changes them. The fight sort of begets the fight. Their own ability to fight changes them. It transforms them and enables them to continue fighting. I think that's kind of what, what that quote is kind of planting kind of early on in the book, the question about fighting and, and metamorphosis or transformation. I think it's really interesting because I try to think of my own path towards organizing and, you know, obviously people have different paths. I was not born into the union world. Um, I did not work in jobs that were union jobs for the majority of my life. Uh, and there are given moments in my life where I could see like, I would never have thought of myself as willing to fight or, you know, willing to fight in like a kind of concerted way with like others and forming a union. At most, my fighting willingness was like telling the boss to go fuck themselves and quitting a job and then going to get the basically the same job down the road. That's about as much fight as I had in me. So I think this idea of like a metamorphosis, like people change is really interesting and important and really difficult because if that's the case, then it means that like the labor movement has a lot of growth to do, like a lot of developing and a lot of growth. It takes a lot of time to like win campaigns and to transform people. So it's not really a question there. It's just kind of like meandering thoughts. Like the more I read your book, the more I'm convinced that you're right. Like there is some kind of metamorphosis that like enables people to fight. And I think victory begets victory. Fighting begets more fighting. But it's like finding that initial spark and that willingness to just persevere seems really, really challenging. I think your book actually talks about those challenges a lot. The hard work that it takes, you know, I think when we tell stories about unions in the labor movement, we tend toward the more sort of cinematic moments, you know, like Sally Field standing on the table holding the union sign or Clara Lemlick, this kind of anonymous person in an audience at Cooper Union being hoisted onto a stage in this moment of like spontaneous bravery. And we really, in telling, it, it's important to have heroes in labor history, but I think in decontextualizing those like cinematic, exciting moments of campaigns from the hard work of organizing that actually makes those moments translate into, some, into momentum or to spark a kind of fight, we do ourselves a disservice. We do the labor movement a disservice. We're not telling the story as, you know, Clara Lemlick, when she got hoisted onto that stage and said, I call for a general strike. And the next day, 15,000 people went out onto the streets. When we tell the story that way, it's, it seems like impossibly hard to reach. Like it's completely irreplicable. You know, we can't... How could that ever happen again at some moment? And it's because it didn't happen. I mean, she did stand up on a stage and call for a general strike, but after months and months of organizing strike committees in nearly 500 small shops around the city of Manhattan, you know, like she did the hard work of organizing when she was in that room on that day calling for the strike of the 20,000, everyone there in the audience knew who she was because she'd organized them. And I feel like 
it's important to me and it was important to me in this book to tell the story of the grind because without that, I don't know how stories are going to help us build a labor movement that looks like the kind of work that we know we need to do in order to win. I think that's totally right. I think sometimes there's this tendency, maybe it's unstated, but the assumption I think is that if you tell workers how much this really is a grind and how how challenging it is going to be, they're just going to be turned off and not want to do it, you know, like not want to fight. So it's almost like you tell these like grand stories of like spontaneous eruptions of general strikes as if like whipping them up into like, you know, some kind of excitement and enthusiasm. So they just start going and going and going. Uh, and I don't know. I just wonder what you think about that. Cause in my experience, I feel like the more honest and candid we can be and actually share the, like the real details of the history of the labor movement. I don't find that often turns people away or turns them off. I think in a lot of ways, it kind of steals their resolve and makes them more committed to, to the long grind. What do you think? I think that's right. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I've told the story of the uprising of the 20,000 and the triangle shirtwaist factory fire, two very separate events, by the way, but we, you know, we sort of tell them in the same breath when we tell the history of the union that, um, that I work for now and that I worked for then. I've told that story so many times. And every time I think, what, what is this in service to? I understand why it's important to talk about labor history and that it's sort of rich and um, that the union is deeply rooted in a long lasting struggle. I think all of that is very important, but we decontextualize the actual organizing work. And I've never seen it work that you like stand in front of a group of workers who are kind of new to the union and you tell them about the uprising of the 20,000 and have it work in a way that causes them to want to rise up and like go on strike. <laughs> like it doesn't work that way, right? So what does it what does it actually do to tell the story in that way? And I I sort of the the deeper I looked at the real history of that moment in the union, the more confused I was, I guess, at why it is that we convey the story in that way because I think you're right that in my experience doing the hard work of organizing, like coming in late at night and debriefing with the team and building wall charts and mapping workplaces and copying leaflets, even like driving around in circles around the city, trying to find people in their house so you can knock on their door and talk to them about the union. All of that kind of repetitive, boring work, right? That work actually is where the transformation happens. Like that hard work is a form of commitment. The time that you spend with other people is where trust and solidarity gets built. That's the power of the union. So I think you're right that describing that to people and not even like, it's not like in a first organizing meeting, I'd be like, so you're going to spend 20 hours a week for the next (laughs) six weeks to build the union in your shop. I wouldn't do it like that, but, you know, giving assignments and having people take pieces of work and do them and spend time doing them, that time translates into something. And I think it is a kind of metamorphosis. It's a transformation that we need. Your book also recounts the story of your own campaign that you lived through. 
uh, actually a number of campaigns are retold in this book. And I think that those stories are really important too and help add to the kind of long history of the labor movement. So would you mind just talking about, you You described a little bit earlier about the campaign in Arizona, but could you talk a little bit more of like from the top line of what this campaign was, how long it lasted and any kind of like victories and failures along the way that you want to share? Because I know it was a long grind. It's a long grind with many peaks and valleys. <laughs> um, yeah, so in 2003, um, which is, I know, a long time ago in organizing life. Yeah. Um, sometimes it doesn't feel like all that long ago to me, strangely. But Well, yeah, actually, just to pause there, isn't it, I've heard, I don't know if this is actually evidence to this, but isn't it true that like usually you get like five years in the labor movement before you either just completely quit and burn out or you're a lifer? Isn't that like kind of the saying that people have? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was even fewer years than that. So it's like three year, you know. I think there are probably people who last about a year and then there are probably like five year, there's like a five year cohort. And then there are the lifers. <laughs> I was like a six year and then I left because I was really burned out and sick and sort of strangely politically heartbroken about that some things that happened in the union. And now I'm back, <laughs> back to organizing. So I don't know what that makes me <laughs> insane, <laughs> a lifer. <laughs> Um, I'm happy to be back though, but so unite, which was, you know, an offshoot of the international ladies garment workers union. And in the early two thousands was a sort of small scrappy organizing union and was organizing industrial laundry workers across the country and had gotten to a point, I think in it's organizing where it realized it had organized some kind of regional and mid-sized national chains and needed to do two things to be able to really create change in terms of the standards in the industry. They needed to dig in deep in a couple of markets where they hadn't organized before. And they needed to go after some of the big companies, some of the big national companies like Cintas. So Unite launched a sort of experiment in Phoenix. They wanted to see if they could go from 0% 0% density to majority union industry. There were about 2,000 industrial laundry workers in Phoenix alone, and probably something like 2,700 in the state. And they wanted to see what it would take to organize them. And, you know, Phoenix at the time was a deep red city in a deep red state. You know, Joe Arpaio was the sheriff, and he literally had a posse, that's what he called it of people, sheriff's officers going around the county looking for like brown people to arrest, asking them if they could see their papers, right? Um, It had that bizarre like tent city prison that was really just monstrous out in the middle of the desert, putting people in. So it was sort of, it was such a bold, crazy experiment that Unite was gonna send a team of organizers to this city see if they could organize immigrant women in these factories where working conditions were really horrible right? and to see if they could make change in the industry. And it took five years, but we organized 60% of the industry in Phoenix. And Alma's factory was the second factory where we started organizing. 
the first we had won through kind of a leverage campaign because it was part of a chain that was mostly centered in California and was already mostly union, kind of leveraged the union strength that we had in California to organize the, the first laundry. And then Alma's factory was the second one. And it was owned, it was called the Commercial Linen Exchange. There were about 220 workers who worked there and it's a hospital laundry. So they laundered hospital gowns and sheets and blankets from area hospitals. And we kicked off the campaign there. We ran a blitz model. So kind of secretly built a committee and lists of workers and found their addresses and then blitzed over a weekend in April of 2003. And in the course of, you know, we, we launched the blitz on Friday and by Sunday afternoon, we had a strong majority on cards. It was like no blitz I had ever worked on before. It was like wildfire. I mean, workers signed cards and then got in the car with us and went to their co-workers house and got them to sign cards. And we'd drive to a trailer park where six or seven workers lived and we'd walk around and knock on all the doors and hold an impromptu like union meeting and everyone would sign their cards. And it was pretty amazing. And then, you know, Monday morning, the company hit back hard and it was a vicious anti-union campaign. And a few days into the anti-union campaign, they were holding captives showing this anti-union video called Little Card, Big Trouble. And, you know, really committed a lot of ULPs during that time. A few days into that anti-union campaign, Alma and her coworkers signed a petition asking the company to stop campaigning against their union. And the idea was to have a delegation of workers take the petition into the office and deliver it. And the delegation, the, the number of workers who wanted to go and deliver this petition grew to a point where the, the delegation actually effectively shut down the plant. It ended up being a work stoppage because so many workers wanted to go and deliver the petition. And they did. And Alma got fired like on the spot. Um, and so did a few of her coworkers who were activists on the union committee. So the company would later claim that they had been permanently replaced in the 20 minutes or so that it took them to have this work stoppage, right? Right. You know, three and a half weeks later, there was an NLRB election. And though we had had a strong majority on cards, we lost the election because the company had just beat down the union so hard. And we filed over a dozen ULPs and then went through the very lengthy process of going through a board hearing and did. And about a year later, an administrative law judge found that the company had violated the NLRA so egregiously that there could never again be a fair process for determining whether or not a majority of workers wanted to have a union in that plant. So awarded a Gissel bargaining order ordering the company to just recognize the union outright and bargain a contract. And of course, the company appealed and the process for appealing was going to take years. So you can imagine the kind of peaks and valleys in that story. We got to majority. We did a work stoppage. We lost the election. We had to go to court. Something like 10% of the workforce testified in the board hearing, which is kind of an astounding number. 
So that even felt like a victory, right? And then we won and then the company was appealing and it was going to take years. And during that years long process, we also were organizing other laundries in the area. And that's how we started building the laundry workers local in Phoenix. When I was reading the accounts of the campaign, but particularly the moment when it had to transition from a ground organizing strategy to a legal organizing strategy, like focusing on ULPs and eventually winning the Gissel order, you know, a lot of it was extremely frustrating. Like one of the first questions, like you mentioned, like they did a work stoppage, demanded the union busting stop, and they fired workers right on the spot. And every time, you know, I can imagine in people's heads, they're saying like, isn't that illegal for them to do that? And the answer is yes. But uh, the process of getting any kind of accountability legally is just a minefield and infuriating. And I almost, uh, you know, I wonder going through that process, like, what do you think about the legal arena and you filing ULPs and like how much you can actually win out of that? Like, I guess the question is more like, what's your assessment of how much that actually rectified the issues on the ground? It didn't. Absolutely. There is a labor law, the NLRA, and it's supposed to protect workers' right to organize. And largely it just doesn't, right? I mean, originally the law was created, I think, out of a crisis. Workers were massively striking across the country and crippling cities. And it got to a point where uh, employers, bosses, wanted labor peace so badly they were willing to legislate it. And that's where the NLRA came from. But almost immediately it started it it was it started being cut down the number of rights that it protected. And 12 years later we have Taft Hartley, which um, really curtailed a lot of the gains made by the NLRA. And then from that point forward, it's like a death by a thousand cuts, really. I mean, board decision after board decision after board decision, just watering down the core of rights that it was supposed to protect. And so now we have labor law that is so broken and loopholed that, you know, an employer, I can imagine, looks at the risk of breaking the law. They're like, okay, I mean, they're going to get a union on one hand, or I'm going to break the law and bust the union. And maybe like a year and a half from now, I'll have to put up a posting in the plant saying, oh, we broke the law and we're sorry and we won't do it again. Because that really is like 90% of the time, that's the remedy Mm -hmm. um, enforced by the the labor board. And like, if you're a boss who doesn't want a union, which like, show me a boss that does does want a union. (laughs) Right. But if you're a boss who doesn't want a union, like there's, you don't even have to do like a, an assessment of that situation, of course, you're going to break the law. It's almost begging to be broken, right? Because there are no penalties. There's no, there's no real consequence for breaking the law. So, I mean, my assessment of it is that we're essentially at a place right now in terms of how unions must be organized. We're pre NLRA, or we're sort of at a place where the NLRA doesn't, it doesn't protect workers and the right to organize effectively in this moment. And so we're back to 
the kind of organizing that needed to happen before the NLRA was in place, which is just mass collective action to bring employers to the table to really make real change. Yeah, we had on the show a couple of times, Joe Burns, who I think has a similar assessment of that. Basically, to revive labor, the labor movement, unions really just need to be ready to violate labor law at all costs and go on these like massive illegal strikes um, and just fight tooth and nail, like class struggle unionism is what he calls it, which brings me to like the question about labor peace. Like, I wonder what you think about this concept of labor peace, having gone through such a vicious anti-union campaign. I haven't experienced an anti-union campaign to the extent that you have like that. The one I'm describing in the book is clearly like all out, you know, class war, (laughs) like there's no pretense around it. And going through that and then having kind of at the end of the day, this Gissel order that basically demands some level of compromise and labor peace. Like, what do you think about this idea and like whether it's realistic to expect that we actually can regain some kind of level of labor peace in the union movement? The requirement for labor peace is a war, right? I mean, not to be hyperbolic about the situation, but in order to make employers want labor peace, there has to be a war. And I think that we're not close to that point yet. I think, you know, there are some exciting signs, I think, at this moment in the labor movement and things that we should all be sort of watching and encouraging. You know, there are greater number of strikes happening, even though many of them don't involve large groups of workers. There are movements of kind of younger people entering the labor movement in ways that are really, I think, democratic. There's a big push in the labor movement around internal democracy. And I think all of those things will have to continue and and continue to grow really rapidly if we're ever going to get to a place where people are considering needing labor peace. Right now, there's no there's no need for labor peace because there is labor peace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's a good way. There's labor passivity, even more or less. Like there's just not even a willingness to do the the fight in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Or the fight is episodic. I think like what you're saying. Yeah, I think the fight is episodic and. You know, we talk about the labor movement sometimes in very broad strokes, and I think it's important to remember that labor is not a monolith. There are fighting locals out there, you know, and fighting unions out there. Um, But I think in in the broad strokes, when we step back and look at the movement as a whole, I think you're right that the wars are episodic or battles are episodic. We're not in a position right now where we're leveraging enough power to even require peace. Well, another theme of your book, or at least like a question that kind of comes up repeatedly is the role of staff organizers in helping instigate these fights. And what I appreciate is the candor of your book talking about, you know, there's kind of these unspoken rules around relationships, like how close you get to workers or like what you're allowed to share about yourself as like a staff person. I don't know how often they're like explicitly coached into staffers. It sounds like in your experience, they're kind of explicit in a lot of ways, like told, like, don't cry during workshops, like don't get emotional, things like that. But there's also this kind of like, yeah, I don't really know exactly how to articulate it, 
But today, I think there's an increasing enthusiasm for notions, like vague notions of like the rank and file strategy. But I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that and your own experiences and your own kind of discomfort with kind of navigating being on the staff side of these really big epic fights. I have so many thoughts about that. Like part of the reason I wrote the book was trying to like figure out where, what I think about that. You know, I think there are, there are so many different organizing models and cultures in different unions. And I think the culture, at least in the team that I was on in Unite when I was brought up as a young organizer was to kind of firewall yourself as a staff organizer, your personal life, whatever, whatever of it there was after, you know, weeks and weeks on campaigns, the sort of personal life kind of dwindled after a while anyway, but, you know, you weren't really meant to be friends with workers on organizing committees. It's not like we were going out for beers. Um, That was really discouraged. There was no, um, you weren't really, or it was, this part was less explicit, but it was certainly true that the organizers I worked with and I did not talk about our personal lives really at all, not with each other, not with the workers that we were working, you know, organizing with. There was kind of a firewall around fraternization. And I know that from experience that that is not at all the culture at other unions. There are other unions who, in fact, use the deep personal stories of organizers as a way of connecting with workers and asking them to share stories back, right? So there are other organizing models that are built really on the idea of personal exchange. And Unite did not have that culture. And I think because I've seen those different models and in some ways I've seen them clash pretty harshly with each other, the question of the staff organizer is one that I think about a lot I think about it in terms of like the language that we use when we're organizing and when we say your union, your fight, and when we say our fight, our union. And I think when we're running a a meeting of workers or an organizing committee or facilitating a meeting, we tend to use one set of pronouns with regard to the union. And when we're talking with other staff organizers or leadership of the union, we use a different set of pronouns. And I th- that's always been really interesting to me, like how much of the campaign is worker driven and worker led, how much of that is performance and how much of it is real. And why is it that we as organizers, at least I was never really taught to think about that or be aware of it or be critical of it. And I think we should be because I don't know what, what good it does to pretend that organizers don't exist and aren't doing a lot of work on campaigns, number one. And number two, there's a power dynamic inherent in that. Like we are guide in the best of worlds, we are there to sort of facilitate and guide workers through a process where they can become rank and file members of a union that they belong to and that they run. But still that role of guide is a role of power. And if we're not thinking about it and making it explicit in our work, then that power can roam in all sorts of ways. You know, I think it's dangerous to have power that goes uninterrogated inside an organization that is meant to be democratic. Hmm. I think hard about it in the book because, because I think it's important. 
And where do I come down on it? Were you asking me that? Where do you come down? Well, I don't know. Um, I guess like my follow-up is, you know, how do you hold yourself accountable to those, to embodying those democratic principles? I know we've talked about like, I have a tendency towards wanting to control things and wanting like to have my hands all over a campaign and like make sure that it's disciplined and focusing on going through a methodology that I know is effective. And sometimes I just have to like get myself convinced that it's okay to like let things fail to just not speak at certain moments. Like, but it's hard. It's hard to figure out my own kind of self accountability in this process. And I guess I don't know where I come down on the question of staff, but maybe I'm more interested in knowing like, how do you hold yourself accountable to these democratic ideals? A really good question. I struggle with it all the time. I think you're right. I, I like to control parts of campaigns that I work on. And by parts, I mean like all the parts, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. And I think that's because I don't want to lose. That really is minimally about my own ego. It's really about the stakes are high. We know it happens when we lose. We, you know, if fighting begets fighting and winning begets winning, then what does losing beget? <laughs> right, right. And we can't afford to lose. The labor movement is a critical piece of making change happen in the world. That's like, I don't know a way to liberation without it. So it's, it's essential that we win. And I think that the role of staff organizer in some ways is a role of expertise, that we have expertise. We know how to win, or at least we know all the ways we failed in the past and we don't want to replicate them. We don't want to do them again. So we want to have campaigns that are organically, democratically driven by workers, but it's hard to, we don't want workers to make mistakes that we know will lead to you know, that could lead to the campaign failing. And I think the project of being a guide on a campaign that is democratic and led by workers is really about democratizing the knowledge that we hold. We hold a lot of knowledge and institutional memory, and those things are important, but we have to figure out how to very quickly, from the very beginning of a campaign, democratize that knowledge so that we're not we're not the only ones who own it or hold it or contain it, because then then there's a source of power there that ends up going uninterrogated. Was part of the motivation of writing your book to try to democratize the knowledge of these experiences? Because I think one I will I do want to make sure this is clear to listeners. You know, I read a lot of labor books. Most of them are very dry uh, and badly written, even if they have good information. Your book is not like that. It is very much like, it's kind of like a memoir, ethnography. The writing is very rich and accessible. So to me, at least my impression was, it seemed like you wrote this book for a general audience, like not just for a bunch of labor dorks like me that like want to think about, you know, all the high theory of change and how we organize. Was this also part of your motivation? Yeah. Thanks for those kind words. Yeah, I think I worry sometimes about what the labor dorks like me and maybe like you will think of the book because it's not a, it's not sort of an information dense labor book, although there is a lot of information in it. But I wanted readers who might not normally find their way to a book about labor 
to be able to find something else that's that sort of hooks them to the book, right? Some other reason to pick it up. Um, because I think that people who, you know, are sort of just empathetic members of our communities and society who might not know a lot about labor, I think they should care about labor. <laughs> and I, I hope that the book will find its way to them. And I hope it will kind of open them up to thinking about organizing and caring about workers and their campaigns and their unions. That's my wish for the book that it will, that it will do that. And also, you know, there are daily headlines right now about unions There, you know, labor is being written about more right now in the, in sort of the general media than it has at any time in my lifetime, for sure. And I think, I hope that the book can create some, some context for people who see headlines and wonder like, what the hell is all this about? And it will give a sort of humanizing portrait, the work that goes on behind the scenes of that headline. You know, I kind of want to bring us to a conclusion here. And I was thinking that we started off with the will to fight and the metamorphosis it takes for most people to have that will to fight. So I wanted to kind of put this question more specifically on you because you mentioned that you left the labor movement for a while, but then you came back. So would you mind sharing, like, what was your will to continue the fight and get back involved in the labor movement after having been burned out for a little while? So I left the labor movement and I went to graduate school and I was teaching creative writing at the University of Arizona. And while I was there, I was watching the university become more and more reliant on contingent faculty who are desperately underpaid. A lot of my coworkers and friends at the University of Arizona were like teaching six and seven courses a semester just to barely pay rent, not making, like having to work double time to make a living wage. And I started organizing there. And I was organizing on the university with students and other faculty to have the contingent faculty become part of the body of the general faculty there so that they had a vote. They had an actual share in the governance of the university. And then from there sort of built in a wage floor and then a ladder to promotion that was sort of built into the system. So I say that I left the labor movement and I did, I, you know, I was not getting paid by any sort of labor organization, but I, I think I can't ever really be far away from a fight. It's just not in me. <laughs> so I was organizing that whole time. Right. And then my family and I moved to Pittsburgh a couple of years ago and, you know, I'm just inspired by this city and the history here and the fights that are going on right now, like live time here in the city. And I just couldn't, I couldn't stay away, I guess. I'm glad you're still in the fight. So our guest has been Daisy Pitkin, author of On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. It's a really, really excellent read. I, we only really scratched the surface of what's in the book. And I encourage folks to go get a copy and check it out. Because like I said, I read a lot of labor books. I think this one is definitely amongst like my favorites, like immediately. Uh, and folks should go and get it because this is more of an intimate depiction of what it's really like to be inside the labor movement and to fight and to like suffer through losses as well as like get some taste of victory. 
So thanks so much for taking the time to share a little bit of what's in the book and hope we can have you back on Labor Wave in the future. I'd love that. Thanks, Alex.